0: Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, good morning, friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I'm Ian, joined as always by Emily and Megan. We aim to be your fearless leaders through the world of of turn-of-the-century Russia. And uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I am full of sorrow, full of sadness, and ever-growing apprehension about what is coming in the pages ahead.
1: Yeah, this is a pretty brutal segment.
0: Brutal is the word, uncomfortable in every conceivable way. Do you have anything redeeming to say about this passage?
1: Hmm? Um, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can find something redeeming to say. I had to think about it for a minute, though. You know, Yeah, like, exactly. The long pause is real. I think the redeeming qualities of these chapters for today lie with Tolstoy himself and his ability to present such a vivid portrait to us a believable shift in one of our favorite characters. Um, Natasha remains the same all throughout. I believe that it's still the same person, even though she is radically different than the Natasha we met at the beginning of the story. So I think that's a testament to how gifted Tolstoy is in character depiction. Um, Mm. And the way that he portrays her being seduced by Anatole and the way that he sort of, in terms of mechanics of writing, switches from uh, direct interactions between the characters to more and more impersonal and disjointed relations of what's happening, made it really,
2: I don't know, believable. You felt like you were in her head.
0: Hmm. What do you think about that, Emily?
2: I think that's really interesting. I'm excited to talk about that. I think mostly our section today consists of character studies and of both Anatole and Natasha. And I'm excited to talk about the Natasha, you're seeing who is essentially the same, just different. Yeah. But I'm excited to talk about our first real dive into Anatole's character. And I'm wondering what you guys think of this dude.
0: Yeah. I was, I had in mind to do something a little, just because, man, I was reading through this and just, I was sitting, as Emily can tell you, across the living room, just going, no, oh, no, yeah. no, no,
1: no. I wrote, no. uh oh, <laughs> and yikes like a hundred times in my mind. Oh,
0: yikes. <laughs> So this is this is very dark and difficult for me because I love me some Natasha, man. And I don't want to watch her give in to some reprobate. Anyway, I thought maybe we'd do something kind of funny and cast some of our characters. And here are the rules. You cannot choose someone who was in the War and Peace miniseries that we've spoken so highly of. It has to be someone else. Hmm. But since we're doing character studies here, who would you put in the role of Anatole? This is a difficult question, right? Think about it. He's got to be attractive and confident and at the same time, totally seedy and a complete slime ball. That's a very difficult thing to
1: draw. Kind of stupid. I mean, there's... Yeah,
0: a little oblivious, right?
1: Not to be Mm -hmm. forgotten, the Anatole that we met at the beginning of War and Peace, who was a carouser with Dolikov and not the brightest of the bunch
2: easily led by Dolokhov and sort of follows him around. He's he's empty headed. Yeah, he believes in himself. It's not that he's evil in intent. He it says he thinks that everything he does is good. He's also entirely
1: dependent. He's not financially stable of his own. He's a gentleman that depends on his father. And it says multiple times on Dolokhov's loans and Helene's generosity. So he's not in any way his own man, despite his confidence.
0: No, he's a boy. Chad Michael Murray. Chad Michael
2: Murray. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Interesting. Did I nail it? But he's a... Huh? Uh, he, I don't know if... He always plays the innocent. Yeah, he does. It has to be... See, I was going to say Tom Hardy, but he doesn't have the character of of innocence in that same way. It has to be both innocent and devious.
1: What about that guy who plays... Um, I can't remember his name. That guy who plays Prince Charles in the most recent, The Crown, because he manages to be like, yeah, with the big ears. He manages to be handsome and boyish and innocent looking, but also I've seen him play a villain to great effect.
0: Yeah, I've seen him play a total prick. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) The the look the girls are giving me, you would not believe it, dear listener. You would not believe it. You said prick. We don't Um, say that on the air, (laughs) Ian. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I love the line, Give him money in the guise of loans. Isn't that great? Here we have Pierre being adorable, despite the fact that Anatole is a total rake. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Emily, have you recommended someone for the post of Anatole Karaghan yet?
2: She did. She said Tom Hardy. Yeah, but I was wrong. I I agree with Megan's suggestion. It's difficult because the guy who played him in the BBC miniseries did a fabulous job. Although maybe played him too evil.
0: Mm -hmm. I had that thought while I was reading today.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about, let's talk about that. What do you guys make of Anatole's character? How does he manage to be slimy and genuine at the same time? I think it's an interesting reversal of the character qualities that Tolstoy seems to have been praising thus far. He uses a lot of the same language to describe Anatole that he uses to describe Natasha.
0: Whoa, 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 whoa! hang on. I'm going to need you to be very clear and precise about that.
2: He has the same thoughts, like, how could it possibly go wrong? Everybody loves me. He's completely confident and secure in himself. There's, let's see. Oh, my gosh. The language of thinking that things are impossible comes up again. Like we mentioned last time in the section over and over again, he says... He was instinctively convinced with his whole being that it was impossible for him to live otherwise in the way he lived and that he had never in his life done anything bad. He was not capable of reflecting either on how his actions might affect others or on what might come of one or another of his actions. That's a Rostov quality to, it is. to not be able to look forward into the future and see how your actions, which seem perfectly natural and impossible to do otherwise, could affect others and the bad consequences they could have.
0: That is uncomfortable for me to acknowledge, but I think you might be right. I think you might be right about that what about What about comparing him a little bit to Pierre as well in the idea that um, things are happening to Pierre that he assumes are necessary, mm-hmm. and he just goes along doing them, like the line about a modest Polish landowner forcing Anatole to marry his daughter? yeah, and there are two there are two ways to read that. On the face of it, Anatole goes, oh, okay, (laughs) because he's not thinking very hard. But then there's also a diabolical reading. Hey, you had a role with my daughter in the hay, and now you're going to make an honest woman of her, right? And so it it could be both, I suppose. But I did think of Pierre when I was reading that and think, oh, man, here's another person who is not super clued in to what's going on and is therefore being taken advantage of by everyone that walks along.
2: Yeah, the the ling- Pierre's language shows up all over the place too. It says of Anatole that there was one thing he loved merrymaking making and women. Yeah, um, sounds like the, Pierre. Yeah, and but of Natasha too. Later, uh, she's thinking about what's happening with Anatole, and it says, "Yes, she loves him. Otherwise, how could this have happened?" So she looks at her circumstances around her and says, "Well, it must be that I love him, just like just like yeah. what happened with Pierre and Helene." And it's, it's uh, Anatole's sister that it happened to with Pierre. So the fact that it's kind of repeating itself with the genders reversed is interesting.
0: Yeah, there's some foils developing here. Or at the very least, we're supposed to be putting all these characters in the same bucket.
1: I hadn't thought of that association. I think that's helpful. When I first read that line about Natasha... I guess I read it a little more cynically. I think I'll, I'll give you my full reading as we get through the chapters more specifically. But I think Natasha is from the very beginning of the situation with Anatole distancing for the sake of no responsibility. She's saying things like this is happening to her. And it's echoing her previous talking about herself in the third person. She's so beautiful. Everyone admires her. Everybody loves her, but with a darker undertone of basically avoidance of association from her actions. So I don't know if that if that bears true, but I guess that's true of Pierre as well in a lot of ways. This is happening to him. It's necessary, you know?
0: Yeah, I think it is true of him. What do you think about the idea of Natasha as a female Magdalene? Do you guys remember that little section in the first chapter that we read?
2: It's Anatole is a male Magdalene. A male yeah. Magdalene, yeah. I
0: know. I was I was saying, what do you think about Nat- Given the comparisons that we're making between these two characters, what do you think about Natasha in this context? Hmm. Let me read this. Carousers, those male Magdalenes, have a hidden sense of awareness of their innocence, just as female Magdalenes have based on the same hope of forgiveness. Everything will be forgiven her for she loved much, and everything will be forgiven him for he had much fun. Don't you think Natasha looks at herself this way? Everything will be forgiven her because she loves much? Yeah. Yeah, she's earnest, and earnestness is kind of all. She's um, passionate, and passion is kind of all. And so um, moral ambiguity, on the one hand, frightens her. She's sensitive enough to be aware of the fact that there's some moral ambiguity. But she flees from it into the warm embrace of her passionate feelings.
2: Well, and she even flirts with the idea of bigamism. She says, why can't I have both? Why do I have mm-hmm. to reject one and keep the other? Look how much I love. Why can't my love just expand and encompass everyone? I want to go back to the idea of Anatole as a kind of Rostov, though, and ask, what's the difference? If if Anatole partakes of all these same qualities and, and the same ones that we're saying that Natasha has, um, the an inevitability of things to come. Everyone loves me. Everything's going to be okay because of that. Is there anything that sets him apart from the Rostovs or is it literally just two very similar people have gotten into a relationship and as they say, you should never marry yourself?
0: I do think there's a fundamental difference the more I chew on it. And it's that in the Rostov family, you give, 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 give as an expression of your, of your um, love. And it's, it's immoderate and unwise. And so it has its downfall in those areas, but it is giving and generous to a fault. Anatol's is precisely the opposite. He takes and takes and takes and Mm -hmm. takes and takes and takes and takes with no regard to the consequences.
1: Yeah, that was my instinct as well. I think one of the main differences between Anatole and any Rostov is that he doesn't consider the consequences his actions will have for other people. And this extends to himself as well, and I think that's where he's similar to Rostov's. He doesn't consider how how his spending will affect his future situation, but he doesn't consider how his current actions affect those around him. He's very, very selfish. And I don't think the same can be said for the Rostov's. I think that one of their main qualities is generosity and benevolence of spirit. They are looking around them to see how people are doing in the room with them and concerned for their well-being to a fault. They will actually injure themselves for the sake of other people. And I don't think that can be said of Anatole.
0: Yeah. And it, it has a different impact on the way people look at you. Like, on the one hand, everybody's willing to loan money to Anatole. On the other hand, the Dolokhovs of the world come along and manipulate him, right? Here's the big fish that is too stupid to know that I'm rooking him all the time. And so I'm going to use him so that all of the other rich young men will come and hang out where Anatole is so that I can rook all of them too, right? This is how Dolokhov is using him. And he's concealing his true feelings about Anatole from Anatole because Anatole is a little stupid, frankly. And Dolikov's perfectly comfortable with this level of manipulation and even maybe gets some pleasure out of it. However, even this man, this manipulative dirtbag, tells Anatole to stay away from Natasha. If Dolokhov is giving you advice <laughs> that maybe the reader agrees with, you're in trouble, dude. Don't you think?
1: Yeah. It unsettled me, too. Because until that point, until Dolokhov warns Anatole away from Natasha, I thought he was just doing the same thing to Anatole that he had done to Nikolai Rostov, and it was mm-hmm. history repeating itself again. But as soon as Dolikov starts speaking truth, all of a sudden, Anatole's even darker.
0: Yeah, the villain has shifted.
2: Right. <laughs>
0: just a hair. <laughs> so these chapters take place directly after, clearly, um, the last conversation we had where she encounters Anatole at the opera or the ballet. And in chapter 12, it says the Rostovs didn't go anywhere the day after the theater, and no one came to them. And we get a little window into how the grown-ups, I use that term very loosely, um, how the grown-ups are handling Natasha and her father's negative run-in with the prince, old Prince Bolkonsky. What you guys notice about this scene, in the light of the old Russia versus young Russia conversation where... Um, old Maria is the symbol of all that is right, true, and good. How do you take her machinations on Natasha's behalf?
2: Uh, you're using very negative language, and and I took it as just sensibility. I think that she is being forthright. She she is, she says she has a shouting match with the old prince. She's just very direct, and it's kind of refreshing. And she is open and honest with. Natasha and her father about what she's doing and how it's going. And when it's clear that it's time for them to go, she tells them to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't necessarily mean to be negative. I just meant to put the question of how we think she's interacting in the scene. Cause there's, um, there are foils laying around in giant piles all over the place, and lots of them are defined positionally to our main characters, right? So old Maria is standing above Natasha, being a motherly influence, trying to lead her in a particular way. And then all of a sudden, here comes Helene, Countess bezhukov doing exactly the same thing, hmm. but in a totally infernal sense. And we might get something out of the comparison. What do you think, Megan?
1: Well, I'm just examining our chapter, and we actually don't get Maria Dmitrievna's report on how it's gone with old Prince Andre she leaves in this scene We know what she's off to do but we don't see the effect of it We just get a study of Helene's visit and its effect on Natasha and I think the the thing I came away from this chapter with is a deeply unsettled feeling as usual whenever I hang out with Helene I think she's the absolute worst <laughs> but um, more unsettled than usual because of Natasha's reason for trusting her, involving Pierre, she says to herself Mm, as she justifies trusting this woman, well, she knows that I'm betrothed and she and her husband, Pierre, the upright Pierre must have talked and laughed about it. So it all must be okay. You know? And I think that might be the last thought that Natasha has of Pierre before diving in to this scenario, but she uses him and his uprightness and how much she respects him to justify turning this way. And I think that is thought-provoking and
2: a little unsettling.
0: Yeah, that's unsettling to me too.
2: Obviously, this is childishness on Natasha's part, but don't you think that it shows just the unintended consequences and like the interconnectedness of all of our characters? Because there's a way of looking at this in which Pierre is to blame for letting things get to where they are with Helene. Mm -hmm. He basically, by being a good person and yet not being forthright about his current situation, not being honest to other people. He, he has convinced everyone that Helen is trustworthy. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but I think that might be what unsettles me in this
1: moment that Pierre hasn't been honest with his young friend Natasha, that his wife is not someone who should be trusted and he's protecting himself as much as he is protecting Helene's reputation, which is what he says, you know? He doesn't want his friends to know what kind of a pickle he's in. And as a result, they are left vulnerable.
0: I buy that. And I I kind of like it better, even though it it puts a slightly negative and selfish tinge on Pierre's character, because until now, I had thought about it as he's just not um, all that swift. (laughs) Hadn't thought about the fact that Natasha might need to know his wife was a scoundrel. (laughs) and So he just didn't think to mention it, Uh, which I suppose isn't very respectful way to read that character.
1: I don't think necessarily disrespectful, but I did notice his absence in all of these chapters. As the situation gets worse and worse, he's avoiding his wife, which we've gotten used to, but he knows Natasha is here in town. He knows that Natasha sat in the box with his wife and that Anatole joined them. He watched that whole thing happen, and yet he's still not clued in and doesn't think, hey, maybe I should warn you, these people are the worst. Yeah,
0: that's yucky. That whole thing is yucky. So, So who hasn't abandoned Natasha at this point?
1: We get a little rallying from Count Ilya, which I thought was interesting. I
0: noticed that, too. As
1: soon as they go to that party at Helene's house, it's too obvious to miss. And he wants to leave the party. And when Anatole tries to sit next to Natasha, he sits down and doesn't let him sit next to his daughter. And, you know, he says consciously, I'm not going to leave the girls alone and we're going to leave as soon as possible. It's like the only strong thing he does.
0: Right. The Count who never took his eyes off Natasha sat next to her. Anatole sat behind them. Right. Right. Who else? We get some rallying from the count. We already mentioned, and I mentioned it out of order, and, was, and uh, that was bad. But <laughs> Maria, old, old Maria, is on Natasha's side still, and still has a head on her shoulders that's worth paying attention to. So Megan, it's important to notice that this is in fact the chapter where the conflict of the story is brought to a fever pitch. And I've selected you as the person to take us through it, what goes down here?
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, what goes down is that Natasha gives in to everything that's been kind of set up for us from Anatole. He sits Can I interrupt you with them. a question? Really yes, quickly. of course.
0: What is she giving into in your view? How do you read this? Is she, is she over? I mean, clearly the passion that she is, that she is engaged in is illegitimate from the reader's perspective and from Tolstoy's perspective, but how so? Like, what is it that's overmastering her?
1: I would say that she's giving into, well, there are a couple word choices. I think that um, it's significant that at the beginning of this scene, she is frightened and excited by the lack of a moral barrier between her and Anatole. And that's the first time that Tolstoy has, has specified that that barrier that he's mentioned previously. It's a moral barrier and it's all gone and she gives in, the other word I would think of is maybe insanity, actually, because of the passage in the middle of that page, that first full page. She only felt herself, again, quite irretrievably in that strange, insane world so far from her former one, that world in which it was impossible to know what was good, what was bad, so that's the morality again, what was sane, and what insane. And I think, um, to use the word passion, or insanity, or, uh, Immorality, all of those would fit from my interpretation of that scene. Do you guys agree?
2: Yeah, I think her logic kind of evidences what you're saying. Uh, she says, I loved him from the first moment. It means that he is kind, noble, and beautiful. And Oof. it was impossible not to love him. Oof. Just if you take
0: that as like a logical, it's a, sur- sequence, it's a circle. It's circular reasoning. <laughs>
2: it's
1: completely insane. Yeah. Yep. I wanted this thing, therefore I will justify it, would be
2: more honest. Yeah.
0: Right. I wanted this thing. The fact that I wanted it justifies it and instigates the fact that I wanted it. Like just round and round and round, the merry-go-round we go. So Megan, I interrupted you in your narration of what what takes place here. So please continue.
1: Well, I don't have much to say beyond that she gives into all those things. But I do think it's interesting to note that that he follows her off into a private room and you know makes advances of love to her, and as that scene progresses, um, the the names drop away, and I can't remember. I'm trying to remember the name of the literary device that that uses a part to describe the whole. Do you guys remember what that is? It's not a conjuries. It's a
2: metonymy.
1: Or yeah, it might like be that? metonymy. I think you might be right, listeners. If you if you have it and that's not it, please tell us on the Facebook page. But one one part to describe the whole. That happens a lot in this scene. Anatole is described as a voice or as hot lips, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, exactly. But he is though, He's, he's broken down into, you know, hands and arms and not himself. And same with Natasha, which as I was saying earlier in the episode, I think removes agency on Natasha's part as she's responding to this. She stands in the doorway and she waits for a line. You know, she's like, tell me the word to say and I'll follow along with this script. And I just found it really disjointed and it gave her a passive tone in the scene that I think was intentional on Tolstoy's part. You leave this seduction feeling like, was she responsible for that or was it pressed upon her? You're not sure.
0: Yeah, I think that ambiguity may have been the point and that there's a strong argument to be made either direction mm-hmm. there's an argument to be made that she jettisons her morals at the door because of the the little phrase slipped in in the middle higher on the page when she says the dance the echo says, and the gross vater her father invited her to leave she begged to stay right so even though she's being described as fearful and confused throughout the whole passage she wants to stay in that fearful confusion because it feels good. There's something that feels good about it. Reminds me of her description of her delicious sorrows. Yes. Right? Like there's something about this that is, has a dread attraction for her. But then the rest of the scene, I sort of read as a um, um, rape is too strong a word, but he forces himself on her. She says nothing. She does not consent. And the impact of the scene is that she flees at the end.
2: Well, it's definitely the most sensual romantic scene that's been described thus far, and I think that's really intentional. Even the disembodiment of Anatole into lips and voice and all of these tangible physical elements contrasts, like we mentioned last time, with this line from chapter 14 where she's trying to bring herself back from the edge, and it says, she vividly imagined herself as Prince Prince Andre's wife, imagine the picture of her happiness with him but it's just a picture it's not physical it's in the ether and you can't really grasp a hold of something in the ether and so instead she gets a big fat kiss on the lips from anatole and that is the most real thing to her and there's a sense in which that isn't her fault
0: andre isn't here
2: (laughs) i thought of it so many times reading this passage yeah. Well, yeah, if Andre was here, it would be I think much easier for her to to have a more sane logic to to contrast but that brings, the physical th- presence of Andre with the physical p- presence of Anatole.
0: You're not wrong, but that brings up doubts in my mind about the legitimacy of the relationship between Andre and Natasha. On the one hand, we're sort of given it as a high, noble, beautiful thing. On the other hand, um if it's entirely rooted in the fact that she thinks he's pretty and him being gone long enough that she sort of forgets what he looks like and then goes after the next pretty dude that walks into the room. that That's not yeah. real love.
2: Right. Well, I think we should hold off on that conversation until next time. But I think you're on to something. And I think in our next reading, we're presented with a third way. I I'm think we are pretty too- pumped to talk about it. But I don't know if we need to hold off on the conversation altogether, because I think
1: Sonia... Um, introduces that conversation to Natasha's mind really forcefully when she discovers the love letter from Anatole and confronts Natasha about it. She basically says, didn't you love Prince Andre? Tell me the difference here. And their conversation about the nature of love might be good for Mm -hmm. us to visit at some point today.
0: Let's go ahead and do that. I mean, it, it really does have the next, the final two chapters here are concerned exclusively with that. She gets the letter in the first of those two chapters and then, argues with Sonia about it in the second of the two. Mm
2: -hmm. What do we take with this repeated use of the word impossible? What's the fatedness of this moment? In that argument with Sonia, she says, Sonia, it's impossible to doubt him. Impossible, impossible. Do you understand? What conversation might Tolstoy be trying to have about fate? Because he's been having that this whole time. We always come back to this conversation, and it seems like he's really trying to draw it to a point here.
1: Well, I connected it to Natasha's kind of impassioned statement. I told you I have no will. Um, Mm. Mm. It seems to me that she declares it impossible because she considers herself uh, not an agent in this scenario. She's just being worked upon by someone else and she has no choice but to respond. She is a slave to his will. And so it's impossible not to love him because what he says is love me and so I do.
2: It seems very childish to me. And yet... Does she? I mean, just given human experience here, it's so easy to sit above her and say, well, she should have chosen differently. But oh when man, you're I in a moment that like that and you have those emotions, like, I mean, again, he's particularly good at drawing the female character. And when you're in that whirlwind of emotion, it it does feel impossible to get out of it. And so I think it it's... She is to blame and you can't sit from a moral reading and say that she she is fated to do this and that's perfectly OK. But also, like, I, I do think there's an element in which when you're in that muck, it's super hard to get out.
0: I love the fact and I thought it was totally brilliant that the chapter 14 starts with a letter from young Maria. Prince Andre's sister and brings back up the notion in the reader's mind that remember Natasha's most recent contact with her romantic relationship with Andre is Andre's sister and his aging lunatic father. This is the context. And, and is the, I can hear Tolstoy asking the reader, would you do any differently if this was the last contact you'd had, right? We don't get any indication that Prince Andre is wooing her with letters He's basically sending her travel updates infrequently (laughs) from across the from across the world. This man is not pursuing her. And so, like, I think the fact that that's the context she has uh, makes the love letter from Anatole sink like a dagger into the whole scenario. And I do question, like, clearly what's going on with Anatole is not to be trusted And Tolstoy's not elevating it for us at all. But I do think he's using it to point out flaws in the relationship with Andre.
1: I was struck by the fact that everybody besides Natasha sees Anatole coming a mile away, including the maid who comes and brings her the letter. Oh, yeah. Like we actually get a heavy handed description of loud warnings from old Maria who says, I wouldn't go to Elaine's house, not for a million years, but you can go if you want to. And that Anatole guy's not to be trusted. He's the worst. And then this maid saying, a man left this letter for you, but for Christ's sake, miss. And she's cut off because Natasha's not listening to her, but it's, I mean, it's a loud warning from a faceless cast, you know? And I think, I don't know what we're supposed to take from that, but for me, it did increase Natasha's culpability. If she's being warned by everyone, there's a choice to be made in in plugging your ears and saying, la, 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 you know, and I I see her doing that. I see her basically choosing the immediate gratification because waiting is hard and Andre's not here. And, you know,
2: and all those things are relatable as well. That's also true. And you can also turn it on its head and say, even in spite of all of these people warning her and making it perfectly clear to her what's going on she still can't make the right choice.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I just think, um, I think if there's going to be redemption, it's important not to blink and not to, not to look away at how intentional this falling from grace is.
0: I certainly did not intend to defend Natasha. I'm just, I'm thinking maybe it's because I'm a man reading the story. I'm thinking about Andre and going, dude, where in the flip are you? Like, why aren't you here? Because I can feel it coming and I don't know for sure, but I can feel it coming. The righteous indignation, the how dare you do this to me that Andre is going to come back into the scene with. And brah hasn't earned that from my perspective. Because he's been so, so absent. Right. Well, yeah, he's been she absent. says
1: it's um, it's equally impossible. There's impossibility again. It's equally impossible to tell Prince Andre what has happened or to conceal it. So she feels it coming as well. I think that's definitely foreshadowed at the end of chapter 14. Yeah, so
0: that's all I intended to point out. But I think your reading of Natasha is exactly right and is supported thoroughly by her counterpart, Sonia, in the final chapter of our reading. Because Sonia has been a symbol of patient, not demanding, selfless love in her relationship with Nikolai.
1: And... Previously, Natasha has even said that. She said, I can't love like Sonia can. She's kind of an amazing standard of what it is to to love truly. But here in this scene, she says, if only you could know how happy I am. You don't know what love is.
2: Before we move on to Sonia fully and leave Natasha behind, I do kind of want to stress again the importance of both, as you're saying, Megan clearly seeing her culpability, otherwise any kind of redemption won't hit because it has to be a true transgression in order for it to be Agreed. redeemed. Yeah. On the other hand, as readers and just as a principle of good reading, I want to be careful because Tolstoy has given us so much indication of the difficulty of her situation and i think we have to be able to enter into her position and say yeah in this in this circumstance i would do exactly the same thing
1: oh yeah i i don't mean to communicate she's the worst let's stand in judgment over her of don't course. forget to I judge know that. her yeah i actually love natasha she's one of my favorite characters
0: but this is the conflict that so, so far this is the conflict of the story when it comes to natasha right
1: well yeah i think it's going to be telling how Pierre responds to Natasha when he discovers what has happened because he's been such an advocate for her being just a glorious kind of perfect character. I think it's going to be telling. How he responds to her will be, I don't know, right. illuminating. But I, I love her. I'm still entirely in the Natasha camp and I sympathize. I just don't think we can blink at her problem.
0: Yes. Well, and so is... So is Sonia, to be clear. Sonia wept tears of shame and pity for her friend. I don't think ill of anybody. I love everybody and pity everybody. But what am I to do, right? I think Sonia's position towards Natasha is maybe the one the reader is expected to take as well.
2: Yeah, I found Sonia to be very compelling in the scene, kind of for the first time. She's very impressive.
0: What impresses you most?
2: She comes to her friend... Not from a high ground, which is what Natasha has feared, right? We were actually in Natasha's head when Natasha said, Sonia is strict and unfeeling and, and can't understand me. But Sonia actually enters the scene with love for her friend, pity for the horrible situation that she's getting herself into frustration uh, with Anatole. She actually rises to her friend's defense and also like wants to protect her from Maria. Old Maria, who loves her so much, she doesn't want to bring it up to her because she doesn't want to influence old Maria's uh, thoughts of her. She doesn't want to bring it up to the Balkonsky family because that situation is complicated. So she is like she takes it on her shoulders and bears the brunt of this um, until this really compelling last sentence of the section where she says, now or never, the time has come to prove that I remember the family's kindness to me and that I love Nicholas. This is the test of my love. I have to bear the weight of what's going to be a very ugly situation. And also I'm going to incur Natasha's wrath.
1: Yeah, because Natasha has, has been very clear. If you do this, you're my enemy forever.
0: Well, yeah. I just can't imagine growing up with Natasha and believing a word she says in, in attitudes like that, though. Can you?
2: Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Well, she's Sonia's a young girl. They're both young girls. And I think to have your best friend look at you in the face and say, I will hate you forever if you do this. You just haven't had that much life experience. And I think that's a legitimate fear yeah. that you'll be abandoned. Sonia's been abandoned by everyone. Or she's been abandoned by Nicholas. Her uh, own family that's adopted her basically treats her like a Cinderella. <laughs> So, yeah, I think it's a it has to be a legitimate fear on Sonia's part that this is going to like sever that final cord. I
1: also think she's just full of common sense. I mean, Natasha's here swept up in passion. And Sonia says he mentions that there are secret reasons that he can't come to the house like a man. And have you even thought what those secret reasons might be? Use your head, woman. And and it, and it says Natasha looked at Sonia with astonished eyes. Clearly, this question had presented itself to her for the first time, and she didn't know how to answer it. <laughs> she said, "Oh, I kind of skipped that line in the letter. I guess let's ignore it." <laughs>
0: Bless her heart. I just wanna. I just wanna. She needs her older brother, or her dad, or something.
2: Well, and I think, given that it's the physical elements of anatole mm-hmm. that has attracted her the eyes yeah. her, the the masculine eyes begging her the voice begging her; the lips it's sonia's body that she throws mm-hmm. between natasha and anatole yeah. she bars the door with her own oh, I love body that. i think that's kind of significant like and i that draws attention to the fact that andre isn't here again andre so isn't sonia here. is left to to physically protecting, yeah, she
1: she makes reference to every man in Natasha's life as she puts her body in the doorway. She basically says, "For the sake of your father and your brother and your fiance who isn't here, I will not move from this doorway." It's pretty powerful.
0: It is. I thought that was really good. I, it, at the risk of lessening the punch of that, it's also interesting to me. And maybe this just supports what Emily was saying a second ago about Sonya being young, just like Natasha is that she um, considers her treatment of Natasha in this scenario proof of her love for Nicholas. In other words, this scenario relates to my personal situation and is about me proving something about myself, which seems to be a common um, thread among all the young characters in the story. Everything that they encounter is all about them in one way or another. And we can sort of measure the maturity of our young characters based on how thoroughly they are able to overcome that self-obsession. Now, I think Sonia does a better job of it than most, to be clear. <laughs> but it's still in there. And maybe that's just an element of the realism that, that we have come to love Tolstoy for. Well, guys, I'm full of fear. We're
1: getting to the worst part. I have a feeling.
0: I got a bad feeling about this. Really bad. But with you, <laughs> the two of you, by my side, <laughs> I will fear no nightly noises. We will make it through this arduous valley of the shadow of death to whatever paradise lies on the other side how
1: theological of you,
2: let's go
0: well thank you for joining us friends this has been a wonderful journey thus far we're going to finish the volume next time around and then pause for a breath do a little recap and mostly spend all of our time laughing at the top of our lungs about the trees of melancholy that you have all been submitting (laughs) which are fantastic Uh, more of that please and until next time around bon appetit Bon appétit.
2: Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.